this out. Am I on? Yep, I hear it now. Good. So it's been Thanksgiving. You've seen some family. Some of you snuck out. I know. I know how it goes. And I uh, went to visit somebody. We had uh, some friends come over, some relatives, and we really enjoyed their, their time at our house. One of the subjects that came up was conspiracy theories. Of course, with COVID-19 and everything else happening around the world, you kind of got to wonder, okay, who's pulling the strings here? Really, come on. And anyways, we, we discussed one thing and another, and his question to me was like, Uncle Jesse, why do you think this is happening? <laughs> well, that's a big lead on, isn't it? Um, anyways, at the end of it, he said, oh, you're not a conspiracy theory. I, you know, I, I can see what you're saying. But the next day I saw him again, and I says, you know what? I am a conspiracy theory. I do believe in conspiracy theories. I believe in the biggest conspiracy theory of them all. I really do. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The biggest conspiracy theory of them all. That's not the title. The, the title's up there. But let me ask you what happened to Jesus. Do you remember Jesus? What happened to him? If we turn to the book of Acts... For a minute, and we'll take another slide on that one. If we turn to the book of Acts, um, that's our big question. Where is Jesus? The disciples had walked with him. They'd gotten to know him. They'd seen the miracles. And then they saw him kind of turn himself in, get crucified. But then they saw the resurrection. They had hope in their hearts, and then it all went away. What happened to Jesus? So Acts chapter 1, verse 9, gives us a little of this. It says, and after he had said these things, this is Jesus, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men came in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, that's all they had. Until John's writing of this book, that's all they had. They had a, the beginning of a conspiracy theory. He's coming back. That's all. When? Uh, how? No further information. That was all they could get at the time. So um, they lived expecting his return. And some of the historians would say that Christians were funny people. They'd stop on the top of a mountain hill as they were traveling somewhere, and they'd just start staring at the clouds. Those kind of funny people. But that's how they lived. Just as you saw him go, he will return. That's all they had. That's all the more the church had. And as it went from a Jewish church and it went into a Gentile church and, and started reaching out to the Roman Empire uh, during this time, and as they faced some serious persecution and oppression, this is all they had. He will come back. He will come back. And they're hanging on to this, but not a lot more information has been given to them on this subject. The, the disciples, to be fair, tried to ask, when will this happen, Lord? What are the signs of your return? They, they tried 
and they didn't get a whole lot of information. Jesus played coy with them and says, you know, guys, this is up to my Father in heaven. I can't tell you anymore. And Jesus kind of played coy with them on this, on this and, and didn't give them a whole lot of information in the Gospels, and we don't see it there either. Um, let me get into this book of Revelation. It's an, ah, excuse me. It's an introductory uh, introduction to the book of Rome, uh, Revelations, so I need to do some introductory stuff. Uh, start off, we need to talk about... Uh, give me another one there. Do I? That one? Cool. Look at that. Very good. So we've got to talk some introductory topics here um, about the book of Revelation. Uh, so back to the book of Revelations... Got to tell you who's the author. John. John, the beloved apostle, uh, the good friend of Jesus. And he's probably getting up there, getting up there in age. He was most likely one of the, you know, 18, 19 year old disciples, kind of on the young end of things. And now he's getting to be the senior old man, and all the other ones have passed on, moved on. He's the last man standing uh, within the primitive the early church believers, and he's no longer in, in Jerusalem. He's moved on to other places. So it's John, the beloved apostle, it's probably 90 or 96, and that's after, uh, yeah, the year of our Lord, as they say, and it doesn't quite start at the birth of Jesus, but a little farther in, it's, it's squished, squished in there. So 95, 96 is probably about how Old, or maybe he's even a little older than this. Um, and he was going through some persecutions himself. It's a time of persecution for the church. John himself has been put on the island of Patmos. I think that's verse 10 or so. We'll tell you about that. And, uh, or 9, it looks like. And he's suffered there. He's suffered through tortures. They've wanted him to deny his faith. They want to squish this religious uprising. And he's the last man standing, one of the one of the big twelve. So they've been after him. Um, those are some of the circumstances, and not only his, but the whole church has been suffering. The whole church has been going through some real drastic um, times, and and the Lord is faithful to them, and yet they suffer and they die. And we're gonna get a little of this as we get farther into it. Let's see, place island of Patmos, probably, and. Now let me talk about the churches, the early recipients. There were seven churches, and I actually have a little map in one of the slides later on. It's uh, in the area of Asia Minor, it's called, which is actually Turkey, the western side of Turkey, more or less, of course, within the, within the Turkish uh, mainland. Uh, Asia Minor, it's not Asia, it's near Asia, what they would call, or Asia Minor. And these seven churches are not the only churches in, in this time. It's not just seven churches in Christianity. They're a sampling. They're sample churches of a whole spread of the gospel all through to Rome, all through to the east, south, even to the north. There's been a great expansion of the gospel being seeded out. Different apostles went different directions. And this is just a sample and it's a, it's a group of churches that John has direct connection to. So, this is the tricky part, interpretation. 
That's what's on the slide. You've got four different ways of looking at this. This is where you can start a fight at church, if you so please. And uh, no need to do that. But I had to look it up just to write it up and what, what are these things called. I know there's four and I know kind of where they go. But it kind of goes from one extreme to the other. You can start with the allegorical interpretation of the book of Revelation. Basically, that says it's all pictures, it's all dramatization, it all just needs to be, you know, fancifully interpreted to mean whatever you think it means. You know, it's all just good morality. What they, those who interpret this way um, are trying to represent with these pictures and symbols and revelations the battle between good and evil. It's pretty generic. It's kind of a soft sell. Not a whole lot of critical thinking need to be involved, just a little creative thinking. Uh, for the idealist, uh, that, that's what you call the idealist or the allegorical at the top there. Um, the next one down, can you see that? Eh, good, you can see it better than I can. Um, the next one is the preterist. And this, there's recently a, a Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible man. He wrote a book, The Code, Code, Codex of Revelation, something like that. And, and he takes this view, the preterist view. He doesn't believe in all this other stuff that these Christians believe. You just got to interpret this. Everything happened uh, at the fall of Jerusalem. So what John is doing is he's representing the chaos of his times. Everything happened, how Jerusalem was destroyed, how the Romans came in, and so he's given these all symbolic names, and you just got to fit, fit the stories into that block of time, the preterist, right into the, into the year uh, 70 when the fall of Jerusalem happened, and there were some other events afterwards. So um, another way to look at this is the historical or historicist kind of view. And they take all these events and try to fit them into the last 2,000 years. So similar to the preterist, but instead of narrowing it down to just those years, the destruction of Jerusalem, they're saying it's about the church in all these last 2,000 years, all the sufferings that have gone on, all the martyrdoms, all the, all the purges, all the different things that God has allowed to happen in the churches, and we're getting, uh, we're getting this in the book of Revela uh, Revelation. Okay? The events have been fulfilled in history since with the fall of the Roman Empire, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the, and they take big events and fit them in. So that's the historicist way of looking at it. Generally speaking, we will take, and I think everyone here who teaches on this passage is going to take the final point of view, which is futurist or the literal interpretation of the book of Revelations, which basically says it hasn't happened yet, folks. It's still coming. All right? So we take the book of Revelation and says it means what it means. It just hasn't happened. That's why you don't see all those events played out. So the futurist looks at this with a literal interpretation, and then we're going to find in here, well, this is going to happen probably after the rapture. And that's a question you can, you can discuss before or after the rapture. But it's probably going to happen after the rapture, all these events, and these events uh, are going to include, um, you know, let's see, we got the tribulation within the world, seven years of tribulation. We're going to have uh, the millennial, Christ's millennial kingdom on earth, so he will come as the king, and we're going to be with him and 
Israel is going to be joined in um, as a nation group, and the new Jerusalem and all that is coming. So we're looking ahead to these things, and, and there's a lot of breakdown in what happens. One verse that is worth looking at here is Revelations 1.19. And Revelations 1.19, flip my page here, says, Write therefore the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. So you've got three piece. The things which you have seen, that's basically chapter 1. It's what John is able to perceive. He is seeing Christ. Chapter 1 is the presentation of Jesus Christ at that time and in our time. That is who Christ is today. So that's going to be a little of what we'll look at in this morning. But then the next part is chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is the things which are. Write to the seven churches. Encourage them during this time. So those chapter 2 and chapter 3 is encouragement to us as a church, to, even to today. Those are written to us. You can identify with any or with all of those churches if you want, but those are written to us. Those are the things that are. And then he says, and the things that are to come. And that takes you from chapter 4 on through the rest of the book. The things that are to come. So that's how you break down um, a literal interpretation or a futurist interpretation of this book. Got it? Got it. Good. Now let's get into our passage. We want to study. Wow, I got that small. You guys read it in the back on here? Good. I'm glad. I'm going to need my glasses. Redone. Where's Sean? Um, so the first two verses, we're going to see just the title, and, and the title is really neat. It's right there in the text. By the way, Dave, the title of Revelations isn't God wins. The title of Revelations is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, uh, just starting the first fight, getting, a, getting an early, early punch in there. All right? Um, Jesus Christ, this is the title. And it's not Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ is unveiled or revealed to us, shown to us. This is the title of the book. Where did Jesus Christ go? What happened to him? Where is he today? And the answer to that is the book of Revelations. He's here. This is who he is. Chapter 1, 2 and 3, and then 4 on through the end. This is Jesus Christ, the showing of Jesus Christ. And I'll read this. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the first thing I see here is that this revelation of Jesus Christ, this whole book, is a gift. It answers that questions that the early churches had. Where is Jesus? When is he coming? It's going to fill in the gaps. It's the stuff that Jesus was playing coy with, saying, I don't know if I can tell you these things. This is up to my father. But here it comes, from the father. This is going to fill in the gaps. This is going to give us the rest of the picture, the rest of the information. Uh, there's an order of communication, and it comes down in five parts. It's kind of, kind of interesting, but it's going to come from, John, from God to the church. And there's going to be three intermediates in the middle. God gives it to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ gives it to his angels, gives it to John. It's kind of cool. It's a long process, but we're getting a message from God. We're getting a message from God, and his message is Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ today. Not the first advent, but the second advent of Christ. The second coming of Christ. So that can be kind of cool. The next one is when he talks about John, and I like to look at this here. He sent us communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John. Bondservant is a, is a great word to study. It's a willing servant or slave. And it says, he bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want you to take special note of that word, witness. When it says witness, it doesn't just mean he talked about it. It doesn't just mean he says, yep, 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 that's, that's how it happened. He wasn't just a witness in a court of law. Witness has taken on a whole new meaning in the, in the early church. Witness means martyr, or just about martyr, in John's case. Tortured for Christ and still faithful to the truth. Imprisoned and still faithful. Killed, still faithful. That's what witness means. Witness takes on the connotation of martyr, somebody who is deeply committed to what he believes and is willing to face every kind of uh, persecution that man is willing or can bring his way. So John's witness, and look at what he was faithful to. He was faithful to the Word of God. The Bible became a huge rallying point. What they could of holy scriptures was preserved, was hidden, at the cost of their lives. So the word of God, he was faithful to that, and to Jesus Christ. And that was the other thing that was typical in the early Roman Empire. They wanted you to deny Christ and just take the incense, the salt, whatever it is, and put it there for Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And Christians would deny that. Say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So they got persecuted for a couple of things, and these were the key points, the linchpins of why you would be persecuted. Just deny Christ. Just give up the Holy Scriptures and we'll let you free. So this was, a, this was John, one of the witnesses, proven witnesses. Um, in verse 5, if you look down, you'll see Jesus also is a martyr, and he was a faithful martyr. So you look down at verse 5, skip down a little bit. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. But this is a really cool part, because even though he died, he was the firstborn from the dead, risen from the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this is a martyr showing you the rest of the story, the picture, the hope of a martyr. So it's a pretty cool picture of Christ also as a martyr. But the theme of martyrs is all through this book of Revelation. So pulling out one thing that you're going to see again. And my question then becomes, if this is a big theme in this book, it's supposed to be a theme of encouragement to be able to suffer, to be willing to suffer for Christ. How about us? Being considered a witness was a great honor in the early church. Having suffered for Christ was considered just, man, you just went up a few notches in everybody's eyes. That was a big deal. And, and how about us? Are we, are we there? Are we standing up to the criticism, 
Sometimes it's just the sly jokes about, and you just, eh, well, I'm just going to Joni, and so they don't make fun of me too. Do we slide on stuff, or do we come out and be faithful witnesses? And it's hard. It's getting harder. This country is turning some corners, and the times have changed, as you may have realized, and it's time to be a faithful witness and stand up and stand out. So that's just the first couple of verses. Let's look at another couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And I'll just stop right there because that comes into this portion. I'm going to add that in. So this is the cool part. The first verse, verse 3, is a promise or a, or a blessing. Um, it's a blessing with a promise, maybe you could say that. Reading aloud is considered to be, uh, <clears throat> let, me be let me be a little bit uh, non-biblical, it's, it's, to, it's considered to be good luck to read this book aloud. All right? Why? Well, I don't know. It's considered to be good luck. No, it's the, it's the tradition of the early churches. Bibles were scarce. Uh, they didn't have a whole Bible. They would have scrolls, letters, hand copied. And if you had one and you could come and read it to the church, you would read it aloud. And as you read it aloud, others would listen. And, and you're helping those who maybe can't read or those who don't have a copy of their own. So reading the Word, reading this book of Revelations in specific, was considered to be blessed. This is something that is good for us. It is meant to be our encouragement. And we're going to see that in the next four verses, why it's an encouragement to us. But it is for our encouragement for building us up in our faithful witness. As we stand for Christ, as we wait for his return, as we anticipate it any time, and that's another thought that comes out, he's coming quickly. Um, as we anticipate this, it is not just good luck. It is for our encouragement. It is to help us stand strong, and God adds his blessing to it. Um, so there are things to listen to in this book, but there are things to obey. There are things to obey in the book of Revelation. So if we're not reading it, we're not going to be obeying it very well. And I, and I can't help but think of the instructions given to the seven churches. Boy, there are some great instructions, some really pointed instructions from Jesus Christ himself to his church. And, and I've, I've pointed this out before. This book of Revelations becomes kind of a love letter from Christ, the husband, Christ, the groom, to, to the church, to the bride, and, and saying, hey, this is how I feel about you. This is what we need to do. And it's this... It's this very powerful love letter through some very difficult times that are also described. But you start this way, a lot of love, a lot of emotion, right through chapter 3, and on. Gets a little sparse, but towards the end, you see again, Christ and his church united. And there's the, there's the marriage uh, of the Lamb. There's a ceremony. There's, there's a hope 
of spending real quality time together, about a thousand years worth, and that's just the beginning. Okay, so there's some really neat thoughts if you want to think of this as a romance um, uh, in this book. So there's the urgency of the gospel, and that goes through the difficult portions of the book of Revelations. The urgency of the gospel, you got to keep putting it out, keep sharing it. People are still turning to the Lord, and when adversity hits, we might be struck by the difficulties of the times, but people are open. We've got to take advantage of it. And you see that clearly in the book of Revelations. There's, there's urgency. There's danger. There's warnings. There's things to be aware of, be careful of. But overall, and this is important, you can get into the book of Revelations and you can see dragons, serpents, monsters that come out of the abyss. You can see... Uh, Crazy things that happen in the sky, water turning to blood, oceans that won't flow anymore, ships that get stranded in bloody waters. Okay, there's, there's, there's stuff for a lot of horror stories. And you can get wrapped up in it, you can get tied up, you can get bogged down in it. But if you miss Jesus Christ, don't ever forget what the book of Revelations is about. It's not revealing the disasters of the end. It's revealing Jesus Christ. It's revealing Jesus Christ. So don't get bogged down in the other stuff. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Watch what he's doing. Watch where this, what this book is showing us about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to go really soon here. So let me just, uh, ooh, do I have the recipients? No, not yet. I don't know what happened to my, to my seven churches. Um, the seven churches of Revelation are a sampling again of the, se- of the first century churches, and they get a pretty typical greeting. Their greeting there in verse 4 is grace and peace. It's fairly typical, nothing really special about it, except for one slight detail. Look at who's writing. Look at who's writing. At John's writing, but who told him to write? And there you go. It says, grace and peace to you from... Him, him who is. And you get this echo of of Moses at the burning bush. You get an echo saying, oh yeah, who are you? Who do I tell them that you are? He says, I am who I am. It's him who is, self-existent. The God who doesn't need anyone else, he exists. But in in this book, he adds him who is, and who was, and who is to come. So you're going to get the self-existing God, and he owns the future, past to future, all the way through. He owns the whole picture. When you say it's history, it's his story. He owns it. It's God's story. God gave the beginning, and God knows the end, and everything in between is his story. He's running the show. He's running the show. So you get the eternal God giving this greeting, and that's not it. Not just the eternal and timeless God. You're also going to get the seven spirits in heaven. And that's kind of mysterious. Um, for this, you'd have to go back to, I like it, Isaiah 11. And I will look at this one. Isaiah 11 gives us a 
gives us a peek at the seven spirits because this you, you can you can say that the spirits are angels. There's some language issues involved, but um, let me look at verse two and three. Says and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So you get one spirit or not. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, there's a couple more. The spirit of counsel and strength, there's a couple more. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And you get seven different spirits. And it's not that there's seven spirits, it's that it is the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God is has these different facets. So as he says, the seven spirits before God, I think it refers to the Holy Spirit. It has a good... Good echo there uh, as we interpret it against Old Testament. And then, of course, the beginning of verse 5 says, and Jesus Christ. So what did we get? The Eternal Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. We just got a greeting from the Trinity. Again, if we put ourselves as recipients of this letter, we just got a greeting from the Godhead writing this letter. That's kind of impressive. So the whole Trinity is present and invested in sending this clear message to you. John wrote it clearly, it says. (laughs) Clearly. Boy, could have fooled me. Um, Some of the stuff has me baffled still. But this is as clear as John could get it. It's a message from the Holy Spirit, from the Father, and from the Son. Um, Good. So this is your greeting, your blessing. There's a blessing to read it, and then we have this next part. I don't know what it says. Okay, so the theme of history and the grand finale. Um, Guess what the theme of history is? Jesus. Jesus is it. This is the story. This is the revelation of Jesus. This is God's plan. God's plan is Jesus. And there, it's a very intricate, fascinating plan. Uh, I like the video of the little girl and dad reading the Bible story about the first coming, right? What a surprise! It's a baby. It's not a king. It's a baby. God threw some real curves into this. God has a great sense of art. God is a great storyteller. God has great things happening. It is fascinating. But now we're coming to the end. And the theme is still Jesus. Jesus is still the centerpiece of history for every one of us um, in any time, except it's not the first coming. It's the second coming. The first coming, yeah, it was fun. Little baby, what a surprise. The second coming, wow, what a surprise. The king rides out of heaven. Um, that's, that's how Revelations describes it to me. I don't know if that picture is accurate. But that's what Revelation describes or attempts to describe um, for us. As we get into these next verses, and let me read it, verse 5 says, Jesus Christ, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be king, a kingdom, priests, To his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that should kind of, that last word is means a whole lot more than I know. Uh, the thing is, there's two, there's two pictures of Christ in this uh, in these four verses. The presentation of Christ to the believers, and the presentation of Christ to the unbelievers. As the church, we're going to see Jesus Christ, who he is to us, what relationship he keeps with us, and it's, it's a real beautiful relationship. It's a wonderful, tender relationship, and you see that right there at the get-go, beginning at, at in verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and it starts explaining his work on our behalf. He identifies with the early church. He says, you've been my faithful witness. And Jesus says, I was the original faithful witness. And I was the witness unto death. And uh, I think it was Peter in one of his uh, epistles, he says, Jesus Christ gave a good witness before Pontius Pilate. You know? It's that word again, that witness. And he died for it. He was martyred, but he gave and the faithful word. He stayed there. He stayed with it. Um, so Jesus Christ is the faithful witness again. But this time, as a witness, and as he identifies with persecuted believers all over the world, even today, he has hope. It's a great hope. But I rose from the dead. I died, but I rose from the dead. And not only that, God accepted and recognized his witness and has exalted him on high. King over all. King above all others. And, and those who have the privilege of being a witness enter into this relationship, a special relationship with Christ. How did I get all those verses out there? Anyways, we'll get to those later. Must have been tapping it. Um, so, identified with the early church martyrs, but he gives them hope, great hope, his own experience to follow. Again, Jesus Christ's work on our behalf is, is laid out here. What's our relationship with him? Um, to him who loves us. Look at that. Right off the bat. Go into the heart. To him who loves us. To him who has forgiven us, paid for our sins, bought us, has released us from our sins. He's shed his blood. That was the magnitude of his love. So his relationship to those who believe is near and dear. He's done so much for us. He's brought us so close. And he made us to be part of his family, part of his tribe, part of his nation, part of his kingdom. We belong with him. We have our allegiance in him. He defines us. He defines above and beyond any citizenship you might have. Jesus Christ defines us. We are his. We belong with him. So um, what a great, what a great picture of, of being with him. And then it says, and it's a funny, funny structure there. It's not just a kingdom of priests, but it's part of his kingdom 
and you are priests. It's a little hard to figure that out, but I think that being a priest is what relationship we have with him as we interact with the world. You remember that? Jesus said, um, I don't pray that you take them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then in Matthew, I think we have Matthew here, somewhere in there. Well, let's go to, let's go to um, the kingdom side first. John 18, 36, on the kingdom side, side, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. And you know what? Neither is ours. Our kingdom is not America. I know, I know, I know you're all Americans, but it's not your kingdom. It's not our kingdom. We have something else that we're looking forward to. We are in this world as agents of heaven, as pilgrims on earth, passing through. We are priests to your neighbors. You are a priest to your coworkers. You are a priest to those who surround you. Pray for them. Ask them if they want prayer. Intercede for them. Show them God's word. Carry their needs to the Father. Good. That's what a priest does. We go between them and our Heavenly Father. We serve the world in this way. Um, that's our role in this earth. We're salt and light, as Matthew 5 says. Uh, Matthew 5.13 says you're salt to the world. And then later on he says, you're light. Let your light shine forth to the world. We give the world a little more flavor, a little more light. Maybe more than they want. But it's the true light. It's the real light. It's the real history. We don't rewrite history. God writes history. And we're showing forth truly what has happened. So this is our role. And, and we can look at this role, this privilege, this closeness to God, to his heart, to his family, this closeness to Jesus Christ. And we've got we've to ask ourselves, do we understand what we are doing here on earth? Or are we just making a living? trying not to die. Do we understand why we're here? Or is that message kind of, I'm just following what my neighbors do. I'm competing with the Joneses. What are we doing in this world? Why has he left us here? It would have been a cinch to take us home with him. There is a kingdom. There is a place for us. It's not that we're here because we got left here. <laughs> they don't have a place for us yet. We're stuck. It's much, it's, it's, it's much more strategic than that. We are priests of a foreign kingdom. We are ambassadors for another country, for the heavenly country. That's the first piece. That's the first presentation of Christ. It's to us, to the church. So Christ is revealed in this book to us in a near and dear way. Our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our King the world gets a different picture. And this is what gets us hung up when we go through the book of Revelations. When we see the other picture of Christ and we're like, oh my goodness, he's a tyrant. That's not for us. That's what the world is going to see. The unbelieving world, the world who has refused his kingship, who doesn't want him to reign over them, who protest God, try to get God out of, this is the picture they're going to find of God. They're going to find the roaring lion of Judah. Not the lamb, but the lion. 
they're going to see it's the same person. But your heart has changed towards him. And so you see a different picture of who Christ is. And it says right there, verses uh, 7, Behold, he is coming, whether you like it or not, with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Let me give you that there. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What does the world's relationship with Christ look like? Well, there isn't one. They're unbelievers. They don't believe in him. And yet, and yet, as we see this Lion of Judah, as we see this, this scary picture of the end times, uh, Revelations, Apocalypse, has come, become synonymous with worldwide destruction. Um, and as we see and as the world finds itself in that predicament, there is still another chance to repent. Repentance is still an option. Coming to Christ, bowing before the king is still an option all the way to the end. Repentance is an option throughout the book of Revelations, but this is the picture that the unbelieving world is going to see of Christ. The world that is left behind after he comes, and I believe it's after he comes for his church, after the church is taken away, this is the picture that they will encounter. They will finally see the heavenly king returning, the one they've mocked, the one they've pierced, the one that they denied, the one that says, he's not our king. Now he will be coming in a mighty way. Um, I don't know if I got all this down, but Revelation 19.11 gives us a, a, a nice... Uh, a nice summary here. It's kind of the one of the one of the conclusions of this book. It's the revelation of Christ to the world. And I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he's coming, and he's coming, and he's coming, and, and, and he's king of kings and lord of lords, and you just can't stop it. And if you rejected him, it is, it is the scariest thing you've ever seen. He's coming. He's coming for you. <laughs> so, a terrible, a terrible picture of Christ coming in the clouds, visible to all, armies behind him. Dread, fear, angst, everyone running, trying to get away, fear of judgment and retribution for the king that they have rejected. You think the world doesn't know that Jesus is the legitimate king? There's a difference between not knowing and always denying. Denying Christ means that you know, but you deny. It's not that they don't know. It's that they deny that they choose to deny continually, and now judgment and retribution. The king of the Jews, whom was rejected. Uh, Zechariah brings up a picture of this, especially in regard to the Jews. Zechariah 12, I think. There we go. Zechariah 12.10 brings up, uh, this was the king that the Jews rejected, the one 
that they pierced, the one that they said, we won't have him reign over us, but now he's coming, and the Jews will have a chance to turn to him, to repent again. In Revelation 11, let me go to this one in my Bible, Revelation eleven eighteen. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The world leaders, they were enraged. They pushed back. This is our world, it's not yours. Get out of our world, and yet he comes. He comes amidst that kind of worldwide opposition, and he's going to walk right in on them. He's going to walk right in on them. Those who turn, those who uh, there's going to be a Jewish revival at the return of the Messiah. Those who turn to him will be forgiven and will be part of his kingdom. But the Gentile kings, the Gentile nations, the rest of the world will be united against, against him, trying to take the world as what is rightly ours. That is their claim. Verse 8 is interesting. Verse 8 sort of stands apart, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And I think this is God the Father. This is like God says, well, while we're at it, let me just throw my signature on this. Let me just sign my name to this letter. And when God signs his name, he does it in a classy way, huh? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, classy signature, actually. He's the owner of history. Alpha was the first letter in the alphabet, and omega would have been the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So I'm the A and the Z. I own it all. Everything in between is mine. This is my world. This is my history. This is my planet. I created it. He's kind of calling it back here. So... He's the owner of history, and he stamps it out and says, I am the Almighty. No power greater. No power to stand against him. You can all be in a rage. It doesn't matter. He's the Almighty. And he's walking in. It's a, it's a very, very powerful, very powerful letter, um, very powerful message that God has here. So the overall message is a message of hope, comfort to us who believe. Encouragement to those who have to stand up to adversity in one form or another. This is why there's a blessing to read this regularly, to go back to this and see Jesus Christ, how he loves us, how close he wants to be with us. And yet it's a warning to the world, to those who reject him. It's a warning that there is a king. You can deny him all you want. He will not be denied. He is coming Jesus Christ is revealed to us in this letter. God has not kept any secrets from his church. It's great. God finally spills the beans. He finally says, here it is, guys. Let me tell you what's really in my little bag of history. This is how it goes. This is how it ends. And yes, God wins. God is the Almighty. He's going to finish this out. Um, this letter isn't just for some churches in the primitive uh, early century of, the, of church history. 
This letter is for you. This letter is for each one of us here. This letter is for the church here, for the individual here. This is an important letter uh, for every single believer. It has promises. It has comfort. It has warning and instruction. And of course, it has dangers and terrors. It's got it all. It's a wonderful book to look at, to frame it out and say, what are we getting into? What is coming down the pipes of history? What are we going to get? This will help us understand, Lord willing, our place in this world, our place as witnesses of Christ. And I hope we can be faithful witnesses of Christ as we are in this world, and we can be a priest to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our children, to our neighbor's children, in the whole world as we represent Christ to others. Let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this uh, piece of Scripture, the book of Revelation, uh, an amazing an amazing book, uh, straight out of heaven for us. Uh, thank you, Father, for the message that it brings, the one true message, which is Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming again. He's coming for us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.